Tonight's image is a powerful, fantastic image of encouragement and especially of victory for those who are the people of God. One of the things that we will note over and again as we look at this paragraph in Revelation 7 tonight is that the key message is to see the victory that is given and awarded to those who are servants of God and those who live faithfully according to His will. We're going to look at verses 9-17 through in chapter 7 of the book of Revelation tonight. It is the picture of the great multitude who have washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. And it is going to show us then the outcome for those who serve God and are pleasing to Him as they walk on this earth. Let's read the text and then we will dig into the things that our Lord has written down for us. Revelation 7 verse 9. After this I looked... And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And when one of the elders, then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the, lamb in the midst, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. A great picture now that John looks to see. Remember in the first eight verses of chapter 7, the call has been gone out through heaven before the sweeping judgments that are symbolized by the four winds of heaven, before those can be unleashed. The people of God, the servants of God must be sealed first. And we saw that number to be 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, totaling then 144,000. And so that is our first image, is that the people of God must be sealed. In verse 9, the imagery then turns and changes, and we see that we're now looking at a great multitude, a multitude that cannot be numbered. And there's a number of details about this group, and we're going to spend most Most of our time then looking at, well, who are these people? What are they doing? Who is God identifying? You will notice in verse 9 there are two interesting descriptions about what these people are wearing and doing. And first the description given there is that they are clothed in white robes. 
That is not the first time we've seen that. That has been a common picture for us in the book of Revelation. We've seen that imagery in the seven churches of Asia. And most recently, we saw it in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 11. Remember there, we saw the servants of God who have been killed for the Word of God and their testimony about Jesus. They are under the altar. They are crying out, how much longer? When is justice going to come? Remember the response is to rest a little longer, but that they are given white robes. A symbol of victory. A picture that they are victorious because of their faithfulness. Because they have remained true and pure and holy to God and have died for the cause of Christ, they are then seen as being given the victory in wearing these white robes. And so again, the symbolism in verse 9 carries the same meaning. Here is this vast multitude that cannot be numbered and they are all wearing white robes of victory. Not only that, they're holding palm branches in their hands. Guess what that symbolizes? In case you didn't know what the white robe was, the palm branches symbolize the same thing. They symbolize victory as well. One of the most notable places we see that is the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And what are all the crowds and the masses holding? Palm branches. Why? Here is the king. He has arrived. He is victorious. And this, that is what the people held to symbolize that victory. Here they come in and they are cheering out to Christ, saying to Him, Here, Blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, the one in the highest. Here is the victor. Here is the king. And so the palm branches give us the very same symbol. But rather than the people taking that victory upon themselves, and say, well, aren't we special and aren't we great because we're the great multitude and we have been found victorious and look at what God has done for us. It's more a picture about God. Notice in verse 10, what are all this great multitude saying? Salvation belongs to God. Salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne. Salvation belongs to the Lamb. It is a picture of saying the victory that these Christians are enjoying and experiencing is because it is God's victory. God has been victorious. The Lamb has been victorious. Because they have succeeded in their plans and purposes, the servants of God are experiencing victory and they are experiencing relief. And so that is the beginning introduction to the image. Is look at this vast multitude that cannot be numbered. Look at who they are. Look at the great things that have been given to them as they are shown in victory and crying out for God's salvation. Now, you have then, I think, probably the intended question that is left hanging for us as we go through this paragraph. And that is, well, who are these and why are they called the great multitude? Who are these people and why are they called the great multitude? The who is answered for us when we get to verse 14. We'll look at that when we get there in just a minute. But why are they called this? And that is important to our study, particularly since we've already saw the 144,000. Why are they called the great multitude here? Why are the servants of God given this description? And I think there are a couple of reasons that we can observe into the Old Testament as to why this would be called a great multitude that is never numbered or cannot be numbered. Back in Genesis 
chapter 15, do you remember the promise that God gave to Abraham? Abraham is given this promise that seemed impossible at the time. Is that his descendants were going to be as numerous as the sands of the sea and to look up at the stars and his offspring would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. To count them if you can. And remember the time, Abraham has no offspring. And the promise comes to him that your descendants, your offspring, are going to be so numerous, it is going to be like this multitude that cannot be counted. And later on, if you remember, in Genesis chapter 32, you have Jacob, he is running for his life because Esau wants to kill him. And he is praying to God, and he is resting upon God's promise that he made to Abraham about how these descendants would be as numerous as the sands of the sea. And Jacob knows that he is the chosen one. It would be through him, through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob. And Jacob says these words to God, but you said, I surely will do you good and will make your offspring as the sands of the sea which cannot be numbered for multitude. This is what the people of God have been prophesied as an imagery. As this great multitude that could not be numbered. That the offspring of the sons of Abraham, the children of Abraham, that these would be the true people of God. And so we are beginning to put together a picture in chapter 7 in this second half of God fulfilling His promise. And we're going to see that as we move through this section that the thrust of what God wants the people of God to see is that God is keeping His Word, God is keeping His promise, and those who are truly His are sealed and victorious. And that's what we're going to see as we keep moving through. Look at verses 11 and 12, which continues to move forward. And verses 11 and 12 is an interesting reminder of what's going on all around us. It brings back in what we read about in chapter 4. Remember in chapter 4, we have one who sits on the throne and he's got the four living creatures around him and they're all proclaiming the holiness of God. And then we see the uh, 24 elders and they are sitting on thrones and when the four living creatures are crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, the 24 elders all get off of their thrones and they fall down on the ground and they cast their crowns before the Lord. And so you have this amazing picture going on of worship before God. And you notice in verses 11 and 12, it is calling all that back in. Here are these angels and they're standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And notice what they're doing in verse 11. They're falling on their faces before the throne and worshiping God. Do you like this one consistent image of what happens before the throne? Nobody's standing. Every time we're ever brought back into the throne room of God, Everybody's falling down. Everybody is worshiping God. Everybody is showing respect and homage. It's a consistent scene back in the Old Testament. What does Isaiah do? What does he begin to understand? He has to fall down and woe is me, for I am undone. And here is the same picture, but again, here's the throne of God. Here is this picture of His glory and brilliance, and the people are worshiping Him. And verse 11 verse 12 tells us why. Notice what they are saying. Because essentially God is worthy of worship. What belongs to God? Blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, might, 
All of those things belong to God. That's an extremely long list of things that He deserves. Power, honor, glory, respect. What a great picture that God deserves all of this worship because He's worthy of it. And I think the intention here at this moment that we'll see when we get to the end of this chapter is to reveal that God has the power, nobody else. God is pictured with the power here. This is going to be in contrast to the nations who are pictured as killing the servants of God. Chapter 6 revealed that to us. It prophesied that was going to happen. We're seeing it here now in chapter 7 that that is the reality. But it is a reminder in the midst of this worship that who's in charge? Who has the power? Who has the honor? It is not any king. It is not any nation. It is not any authority. All glory and honor and power and blessing and thanksgiving, it all belongs to God. And so here we are thrown back into this heavenly scene and looking at the throne room and we just added another layer on what we've already seen. What are the four living creatures doing? Holy, holy, holy. What are the 24 elders doing? Casting crowns. You're worthy of being praised. What are all the other angels doing? They're saying He deserves blessing and glory and honor and thanksgiving. It is a just seems like a crescendo of immense praise and worship that God is worthy of receiving going on in this throne room. And here is a picture of the great multitude in that very scene, standing there, also crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so it is a picture of power that God possesses. Now the reason why that is important is because of what we're going to look at now. In verses 13 through 17. You have in the midst of all of this, I, I, I don't know how you visualize this, I try to visualize these things, and I, you can just kind of imagine John standing there looking at all this in this vision scene, jaw open, eyes wide open, looking at all of this, and one of the 24 elders seems to kind of just walk over and go, now, you know who those people are, right? You know who this immense, vast multitude is that cannot be numbered, right? And John's response, of course, is no, not really. That's the intention of, uh, you know. You t- tell me, please. Tell me who is represented by this vast multitude. And notice the description begins in verse 14. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. This is, I believe, a very important phrase and a key description about who these people are, and in particular, what is going on. Particularly because the phrase, the Great Tribulation, only occurs three places in the New Testament and twice in Revelation. And so there's only one other location for this description of the Great Tribulation found in the New Testament. And it is something that Jesus talked about. And we're going to notice some of the parallels between what Revelation is picturing... What Jesus said when He spoke of the Great Tribulation and what Daniel prophesied about over in Daniel chapter 12. Now remember, I've spent some time when we did chapters 4 and 5, particularly in chapter 5, we talked about the scroll and the seal being opened and its direct connection to the scroll that is found in Daniel's prophecy. There in Daniel, you have a scroll that is sealed up until the time of the end. Now the scroll comes back into play in Revelation 5, and now it is being opened. The contents are being revealed. That which was concealed back 
there in the days of Daniel now is being revealed. Revelation. Here is the answers to the things that were hidden. And so these images should consistently fit together in talking about, well, what is this event? The first place we'll look at this this great tribulation is back over in Daniel chapter 12 and in verse 1. And I just want you to consider, and as you as you read this with me, listen to the language of what's being described about the event that's going to take place. Daniel 12 and verse 1, when we read there, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge over your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Notice the picture that Daniel is told. There's going to be a pretty awful event, a time of trouble. Some translations, time of distress. It's going to be a time of calamity. It's going to be awful. And he says, it's going to be something like it's never happened before. And he says, but the people of God are going to be delivered in that. Now, over in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 20, Jesus uses similar language. As He describes the destruction of Jerusalem in Matthew 24, He says, Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world till now, no, and never will be. And if I had room on the screen, you'll notice He says, and it would be even worse, say, for the elect. He talks about the deliverance of the people of God in the very next breath. What you have here described is the same thing. Now, typically people like Matthew 24 to be the end of the world. Of course, what good will it matter if the end of the world is in winter or on a Sabbath? That's obviously not in view here. He's talking about the city's destruction. Pray that it's not in winter. Why? Because it's going to be horrible. And pray that it's not on a Sabbath. Why? Because you won't be able to leave the city on a Sabbath. The Jews keep only keeping a day's journey. They'd certainly be captured. And so he's saying, you're going to experience this horrible time. And notice the parallel language that has not been from the beginning of the world till now. Daniel and Jesus speaking of the same events saying something awful is going to happen that has not been before. This is going to take place. Jesus puts the title on it, the Great Tribulation. And I think that is the description that Revelation now is pulling from when he says, now, who are these? And he begins with the statement, these are the ones who are coming through this great tribulation. These are the ones who are been suffering and they are being persecuted and dying during this awful time of distress, this great tribulation that Jesus is warning about. Now, I think the question that immediately then comes to mind is trying to understand what is going on between the first half of this chapter and chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, we read of the 144,000. The second half of the book then describes this great multitude coming out of the tribulation. How do we reconcile these two groups? Are they speaking of two entirely different entities? And if they are, we have a lot of trouble in trying to reconcile these two groups. Because remember what we observed in the first eight verses. The 144,000 were a symbol of all of God's servants. These are the servants of God and they are sealed. The picture was that no one would be left out. If you are a servant of God, then you were going to be sealed. And the picture was not that you would be physically protected... Remember chapter 6 said, more of God's servants have to die. 
but that you would be spiritually protected. You are with the Lamb, even though you die, your salvation is secure. Notice when we get to chapter 7, verses 9 through 17, who are we looking at? Well, it's all the servants of God, it says, right? We have saw that in verse 9, a great multitude that no one can number. This is a, a hint back to the promise of Abraham. These are the children of God. And we're going to notice this picture in just a minute in verse 14. They've washed their robes and made them wine the blood of the Lamb. It is a, a symbol of here are the servants of God. I think this is how these two pictures work together. The first eight verses is God making a promise. Seal my people before this judgment is unleashed. Be sure that they are spiritually protected. They are mine. Their names are marked on their heads. I know who are mine. They are definitely my followers. Because the servants of God must continue to die, as chapter 6 pointed out. So mark them for that judgment that's going to happen upon the earth. What is verses 9-17 through showing except the fulfillment of that promise? Where are these people? Notice where they are. They are before the throne of God. And we'll see this a couple of times, friends. They're dead. That's why they're there. That's why they're before the throne of God. Especially when notice the promises that are going to be given to them. No more trouble. No more distress. No more tears. They're not on the earth. They're not alive physically. They have died for the cause of Christ. It is showing now the outcome. Chapter 6 said, how much longer? Rest for a little while, more have to die. However, beginning of chapter 7, comfort. God knows who His people are. They are sealed. They will be protected spiritually. Though they will die physically, as chapter 6 promised, they will be with God. And now what does the end of chapter 7 show? They are with God. They're given white robes and palm branches. They are victorious, though they are dead. It is showing the fulfillment of what God has promised. God keeps His Word. Those who are faithful and those who are truly His, they are shown not dead and gone. They are not shown in eternal punishment. They are shown in the very throne room of God where the angels are worshiping Him, where the four living creatures are worshiping Him, where the 24 elders are worshiping Him, and where they are worshiping Him saying, Salvation does belong to our God. They are shown being victorious and being delivered by God. That is how these two sections are coming together. It is not describing a different group. The 144,000 numbers to show. This is the remnant. This is the true people of God. But how many belong to that remnant? A great multitude that cannot be numbered. And that reaches the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that your offspring, those who are the true people of God, they'll be as numerous as the stars of the sky and as numerous as the sand by the seashore. These are His people. And so it is giving a word of comfort to those who are hearing that message. Now, to take just a minute, Try to put yourself in the shoes of the Christians at the seven churches of Asia who have 
As you've just heard the unfolding of these two chapters and why this is so important. Because to us, standing 2,000 years later, it's like... Chapter 6 just said there's going to be cataclysmic judgment, sweeping judgment over the earth. What will happen to the people of God? God says more of the servants of God are going to die. Friends, in the first century when you heard that letter, that's you. Well and good for us 2,000 years later, oh, well, that was them. We're all not us. Receive the letter that God just said, you're going to die. More of God's servants are going to be killed. That's you. But it's okay. You're sealed. You're with Him. Stay faithful to Him. And look at what you're going to receive. And here's this imagery of all the people of God are sealed. You're not left out. You, 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 and you, every one of you. You have all been counted. You have all been numbered. You have all been recognized and authenticated by God. You are His. But you're going to die. What's going to happen when we die? Victory. You're going to be before the throne of God. You're going to be in paradise. It's going to be alright. You're going to die. But it's going to be okay. Because you're going to be worshiping God. And God is going to save you. Salvation belongs to God and to the Lamb. You will be fine. You will be with Him. Do you see why you need this chapter right here? Do you see why you need these words at this moment? Because it is an indication of it's going to be bad. The servants of God are going to die. And you need a pause button at this moment to say, but it's going to be okay. Stay faithful. Because if you don't say that, anybody raising their hand and saying, well, you know what? Let's just go ahead and die. I I think there'd be a great multitude of people that say, you know what, I'm not up for the dying part. Let's leave Christ and we'll spare ourselves. Let's, Let's save ourselves from this mess. Why has the end of each of our seven churches of Asia concluded with to the one who overcomes, to the one who conquers, to the one who is remaining faithful in the face of this persecution that is going against these Christians, to the one who holds on to the bitter end. Because it's going to be bad. They are being warned over and over again about great tribulation, the hour of trial, ten days of tribulation that was spoken of also in that section. Be faithful unto death. All of these clues say... Stay faithful, but brother and sister, you're going to lose your life. And you need this message right here to say, but you're with God. Though you die, though you are persecuted, you are with God. To bring in the church of Philadelphia that we did a few weeks ago, you are a pillar in the temple of God that none can remove. And a name is on you that cannot be erased. You're with Him. That's what this section is driving at. This is what is being described for us. And that's now the last three verses. The victory that these Christians have 
in Him. Notice then, he says there at the end of verse 14, they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Can I submit to you? I don't know if you've thought about that because I know we sing the song. I think we sung it this morning of you know washing our in the blood of the Lamb. Have you thought about the contradiction of that thought process that their robes were made white by washing them in blood of the Lamb? That's not how that comes out. That's why I like this graphic of the white going red because it's just, it's a crazy image. How do you wash robes and they come out white when you put them in blood? That doesn't work. It's a great little mental image of woe. What is He trying to tell us here? We know what the white has symbolized to have their robes white. We've seen that earlier in this chapter that they have these white robes. It is a picture of victory. They are faithful. They are victorious because they have stayed with God through thick and thin even though to the death. But how do you wash your robe in the blood of the Lamb? I submit to you that this is not simply just representing their faithfulness But it's representing their death. That is the picture that is being laid out. They wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb because they've walked in the footsteps of Christ. Christ was faithful to the Father to death. These Christians were going to walk the same path. Their faithfulness was shown by the fact that they were going to die. That's what's being promised over and over again in Revelation. You are going to experience persecution. You're going to experience death. Well, how do you have your robe put in the blood of the Lamb? Is that you submit faithfully to any and everything that comes, even death. And that's what's being pictured. They have given up their lives completely to Christ. They have given everything to Him so that that can be the picture that they have followed with Him. And so they have white robes. They are victorious because they have devoted themselves exclusively to Christ and followed in His footsteps all the way to the death. It is a a beautiful picture of the faithfulness of the people of God. And that's what verses 15-17 through is continuing to show. Verse 15. See the word therefore? This is the connection. This is picturing their victory though death. They've died for the cause of Christ because they have. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. And they serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter Him for His presence. They are before the throne of God. And they are in the temple of God. It depicts priestly service. It depicts being able to worship God and serve God and perform sacrificial functions in the temple of God that was originally exclusive in the Old Testament only to the, to the Levites who were able to enter into the temples and only into the priests who could offer the sacrifices, the sons of Aaron. And here is a picture of the whole multitude that cannot be numbered, this great multitude. They're all before the throne of God. They're all worshiping. They're all serving. They're all singing the praises. Notice the end of verse 15. They're sheltered with His presence. Nothing else can happen. Nothing else is going to happen to them. They are now with Christ. 
They're now before the throne. Notice the rest of that in verse 16. They will hunger no more. They will thirst no more. The sun will not strike them or any scorching heat. What's the point? Your suffering has ended. You're now with the Lord in paradise. You see the gripping picture. You're dead, but it's okay. Your suffering is over. All that you have experienced, all of the persecution, all of the sacrifice, all that you have endured, no more suffering. No more pain. No more of this discomfort and persecution and problems. In fact, verse 17, why? The Lamb is in the midst of the throne and He's their shepherd. Here is a picture of Christ who is shielding and comforting them. Picture of comfort. Don't you like that in Luke chapter 16 when you read about Lazarus and the rich man? What's happening to Lazarus there? It's the great word. Comfort. What's happening here? Comfort. You're being shielded and protected. You're comforted with Him. And the rest of verse 17, He will guide them to the springs of living waters and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Here is comfort. Wiping away tears from your eyes. Comfort. You're being comforted for what you've experienced. Comfort for all that has happened. Here is Christ to the faithful. Comforting, shielding, protecting those who are His. And the picture of the Lamb guiding them to living waters, the picture of living waters, how often God likes to use that to refer to an image of eternal life. So often, like Jesus in John 4, verse 13, Jesus speaking to the woman at the well, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The picture of living water is saying you've received your rest. You have suffered on the earth and now the rest and comfort is yours. I would like for you just as we get close to the end here, this language of being before the throne of God and sitting from Him who sits on the throne and being sheltered and not hungering or thirsting or sun striking them anymore, that is actually prophesied by Isaiah of the remnant that was to come. The book of Isaiah is fantastic. The first half of the book is doom and gloom. You have 39 chapters of you're awful, you're terrible, you're going to go to Babylon. It's, it's awful. And then from chapter 40 to 66 is all of these words of comfort to those who'd be the true people of God of here's what's going to happen in the future. And here's one of the pictures. Come out to those who are in darkness. Appear. They shall feed along the ways. On all their heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind or sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them and by springs of water will guide them. Isaiah way on back is looking way out in the distance and saying, when the Messiah comes, there's going to be comfort to those who are the true people of God. It's not going to be physical comfort. We have all sorts of ordeals that happen in this life. The book of James and our study of James reveals you're going to have trials. It's not an if, it's a when. We're going to suffer. We're going to have difficulties. But the consistent message of the Scriptures, and particularly here of chapter 6 and 7, if you will remain faithful through your suffering, 
if you will overcome and stay true to the Lamb, you will find eternal comfort. You will have eternal life. You will have the rest that all of us are looking for. And this is a beautiful picture of that. The promise, you're going to die. The hope, but you're going to be sealed. The reality, they've died and they're at the throne of God. They're before the Lamb. They've received their salvation. They've received their comfort. They've received their reward. All is good. No more suffering. No more pain. They're in the comfort of God Himself. And as I try to think about what that would have sounded like if I was sitting there in the first century in the city of Ephesus from the city of Laodicea, any of those churches who received this letter, what precious words of comfort to know. Though we may die and suffer, we will be with the Lord forever. We will be with Him forever. Do not give up. Hold fast to the end. And it will be worth everything that is sacrificed, worth everything that we have suffered, worth everything that may have been forfeited. God will be there and we will be victorious and we will get white robes and we will have palm branches and we will be singing praise to God forever. Pull your song books out. And we sing the invitation song. There's not a better promise than that. Everything else in this world promises all sorts of supposed great comforts to us that are always short-term and short-lived. Everything that's supposed to make our lives better, make us feel better, if we only had this, if we only did that, now everything would be so much better. If you only had more money, if you only had a better job, if you only lived in a better place... If we all lived here, did that, had this, it would all just be so much better. And all those promises are empty. Here is the picture of one real promise. You can have lasting joy, lasting comfort, lasting satisfaction, true life, if you will be willing to hold fast to Jesus Christ. If you will forfeit the things of this world, Confess Him as your Lord. Show in your life by true submission, by true sacrifice, by true passion and love for Him that you would give up anything, even your own life, to be with God. Here is the promise. You'll be with Him. It'll all be worth it. There will not be one person who will stand before God and think that the reward that is given to those who are His is not worth it. It will be the greatest crown, the greatest reward that any of us could hope. Please come to Jesus tonight to turn away from your sins. Be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins to initiate that relationship with Him, to have your sins washed away, and the hope of eternal life. Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?